have a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 6. Uh, before that, I'm going to hit you again with the time change announcement. So, um, uh, if you're introverted enough and you like more personal space, you may feel like it's hard to find a seat at first service. More specifically, if you look behind me, there was on this little monitor right here three zeros just a minute ago. What that means is, is that there's so many kids in the nursery that there's not enough adults. And what's actually a bigger problem even than not enough adults is not enough space. And so one of the reasons why we're changing the, the times of the service is to, by people's free choice, more even out the use of our building so that we don't have to build a bunch of new building. We just use the space at a different time. Does that make sense? And so we're just moving our service times, and we'll just keep moving them until— People just naturally, by their own free choice, just even out a little bit on the two services so that we can—like, why spend, why spend $3 million to build square footage that we can use just 45 minutes later? You know what I mean? Just doesn't make sense. If you're that wealthy, you guys, you should be giving a lot more, and we could be doing some crazy stuff for the poor and around the world, okay? Like, so um, anyway, so uh, a couple things to consider for this. Um, one, uh, you might be a good candidate to switch service times, especially if you attend first service and you can switch to second. Uh, secondly, uh, if you serve on Sundays, check with your ministry leader to see um, if there's any gaps moving forward, especially if you're in Kidsmen or in the Connections team. Those are the ones that are going to have the most transition um, and uh, have the most need of volunteers. And then third, if you haven't served on Sunday morning before, this is a great time to start. Where things are changing up, there's some openings. Some people like kind of get lost when there's more than like 40 people, but like you get in a serving team of like five or six people and it really, if it really feels great. And so, especially for you more introverted people or you're like, I don't know if I want to get more involved. When you get more involved, the size of the group gets smaller. And for some people, that's a lot nicer. Does that make sense? Um, so volunteering is a great way to do that. Um, to do it like directly, if you're the tech type who wants to do it like without a human, uh, highpointchurch.org serve is a great place to go and just sign up. But also if you do that, then somebody can contact you as well and you can like figure out where is a bit good place for you to fit. Does that make sense? All right, that's coming up beginning of the next month here. All right, John, John 6. Okay, uh, I think we're going to be in John 6 for a little while. Um, the more time I spend with John 6, the more complicated a chapter it is. And the more it appears to me to be like one of the center pieces of the whole Gospel of John. And more than I would have said um, a few months ago. And so um, it's going to take a little time to get through it. Uh, like uh, uh, this morning, I just cut my sermon in half because I think I write too, twice too long. Uh, so anyway, hopefully we can fit this in. So I'm going to read a section, and then I'm going to preach about half of it, and that's why, okay? We're going to start in verse 16. So this is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000 which is just 5,000 men. Who knows how many people were there? It could be up to 15,000, right? And he feeds them. He multiplies fish and loaves. Everybody eats. They try to make him king. They're going to like, looks like they're going to make him king because who wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to make somebody king who could feed you like that, right? And then, so Jesus withdraws. And then the other gospels in Matthew and Mark that have this next story in it, um, Jesus tells them to take the boat over to Capernaum. In John's gospel, it's not explicit that Jesus is telling that. We just know that from the other gospels that that's what happened. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into the boat and set off across the lake to Capernaum. By now it was dark. Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approach the boat walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, or another way to translate that phrase, I am, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. 
The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. And then some of the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread and the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into their boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. All right. One of the worst feelings in the world is to do a lot of work, invest a lot of time and money and life into something, and to get nothing for it. I would say especially men feel that way, but I expect that the women would say, yeah, we feel the exact same way as that. Everybody hates that. Everybody hates that kind of investment. I uh, have—a couple weeks ago, I was about to go on like a four-day trip with my family that was completely centered around using our boat. We were going to the Apostle Islands and then to Copper Harbor. And so there was like a little problem in my boat that I was like, I had saved a specific amount of time to go fix it to make sure we were all ready to roll. I get to my friend's house who knows something about boats, and we look at the problem. The problem's not even there. And I'm like, this is great. Hardly any work to have a great payoff. And And then he's like, well, let's just check a couple other things. He takes the top off of my motor, and my whole regulator belt, the belt that's on the top of the motor, is just shredding and sending little bits of rubber everywhere. And then as we investigated that, we investigated another problem. And then we found another problem. And then we found another problem. Right? And after a day's work, I was at his house 16 hours. And we didn't have it going. And my trip was the next day. And it was like, I had spent all this money and all this time and all this work. I spent one of my days off. And now my, my vacation is still dead in the water. <laughs> like, it was so discouraging. I was so frustrated. I was so angry at the guy who sold me this boat who must have known some of these things were wrong. And um, it's just so frustrating to invest so much to feel like you're going to get this payoff, especially if you're, like, trying to provide it for other people. And then, like, it's, it's not—and it's not just that you get nothing for it. It's worse. I have a boat that doesn't go, and it's just sitting in my garage laughing at me, you know? <laughs> terrible feeling. And you see, this is—Jesus literally says this, right? He says, don't work for food that will, what? Spoil. It's not just that it won't fulfill. It's that after a while, it actually goes bad and becomes a liability. So you go out for—you have a friend who's leaving town, you're going to throw this huge barbecue party, and you buy like— 50 pounds of meat, and it's like $470, and you, you rub it, and you like marinate it, and you brine some of it, you get it all ready to go, and then you leave town for two days because you have something to do, and somebody trips the breaker at your house, and your fridge goes off, and you come home to rancid everything. It's like injury to insult. You did all this work, you spent all this money, you did all this stuff, you had all these hopes, and instead what you've got is a problem, right? And he's like, don't 
spend your life. Don't spend your labor, your effort, your money, your time, your energy for stuff that's just going to spoil. Right? You need to pay a lot more attention to what you're working toward. This is a human universal. Okay? So like for a second, you can take this as like TED Talk Jesus. Like if you're not a Christian, you're here, you're listening to this online or something, you'd be like, that's, that's good advice. You could take that completely irreligiously. Right? Like if you're working at a convenience store and you're like 18, like there's no future in that unless you're learning a skill. Like there's labor and there's investment. And the thing that pays off the most is investment in the person doing the labor. Learning skills, getting education, learning to do stuff that people will pay more money for so that you leverage every hour for the rest of your life. You got to think a lot more about what you're working toward. Right? You might want to have a really long-term romantic partner and be married 50 years and like never feel like you're totally alone in the world. That's fantastic, okay? And you might be dating somebody and it might be very satisfying right now. But here's the thing. If you're not careful, if you don't think about this, what leads to short-term dating satisfaction is often the opposite of what leads to long-term, lifelong marital happiness. You need to think a lot more about what you're working toward, okay? And you could—we could do a hundred of these, and it could be sage, wisdom, Jesus. But this is actually not the level Jesus is mainly interested in. Because here's what he knows. If you get the top level of this right, you get everything else with it. If you get the one who gives eternal life right, you'll get the dating thing right. You'll get the—what's your work and labor for? You'll get a bunch of that stuff right, too, especially if you're in the local church and you're receiving wisdom from all the people around you. Does that make sense? What he's saying is, at the very top of this thing, what is the source of the satisfaction that you're actually seeking? You're too focused on the satisfaction and getting the satisfaction, repeating the satisfaction. You need to think about what causes this. Why did you want this satisfaction in the first place? And you see, now that we get out of the passage about the changing— change the water to wine, changing the bread, multiplying the bread and fish, right? Everybody's eaten and had their fill. Everybody's got their tummy full. Everybody's satisfied, right? Jesus says, the reason you came looking for me is your tummies were full, right? Given that, the question is, now what? Now what? Because everybody does work now that their tummies are full, right? The disciples are rowing across a raging sea. The other people are looking for Jesus. So some people are sort of like working with Jesus, and other people are working to find Jesus. And whether the question about your satisfaction is that you're searching for something, you're really trying to find how a satisfied life happens. That'll be next week. Split my sermon in half, right? Or whether it's you are trying to work in line with the source of greater satisfaction, and you're finding it to be very difficult. Both of them require really clear thought in consideration of like, what are you searching for? What really is the source, not just the result of your satisfaction? Does that make sense? The centerpiece negative verse in this passage is Jesus saying, saying this to these people, right? So these people—now, the, the people who find Jesus are—they're are, they're in some ways serious seekers. These are people who followed him um, across a seven-mile lake, right, out into basically a desert area to hear him teach. So that's pretty serious, right? And then, the, and then they're looking for him, and then they get in boats, and they go across the seven-mile thing to go find him. So they're, I mean, they're serious about looking for and finding this Jesus character. And when they run in, and they, and they don't know how he got there, but they don't want to say, how did you get here? So they say, teacher, when did you get here? 
Because you're like, are you also a Jewish teacher and a, a Kenyan marathoner all in one person? Like, how did you get all the way around this flipping lake in seven hours, right? And Jesus is like, let's just cut right to the chase. Sometimes when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's the idiom that he uses, amen, amen. It is, it is the case. It just means I'm going to tell you something that's very important. And he is, in this case, telling something that's very important, but, he, but he, it's on an emotional level very important. He's basically saying, let's be honest here. Let's be really honest with each other. You did not come here because the fish and loaves you ate were a sign, and you're looking for what it's pointing to. The reason you came here is because your bellies were full, and you want them to be filled again. Now that becomes clear when Jesus says something about this, and then they say, he, and then they say, he said, and they say, oh, oh, is the sign the thing that's important? Well, what sign are you going to give us? Are you going to give us the sign of Moses, who gave the, the sons of Israel and the daughters of Israel manna in the desert? What they don't say is this, every day for decades. Do you see what they're saying? Wait, if you're the second Moses, and you give bread, and apparently fish too, Will you then show us you're the Messiah by giving us bread and fish every single day forever? You see the idea? What they're interested in, Jesus is saying, is you're not interested in who I am. You're interested in whether or not I can deliver you the same satisfaction you had yesterday that filled your tummy. And you just want that on repeat for the rest of your life. And if I'll do that for you, then you'll believe in me in some way. But that's what you're after. And you see, the problem with that is, is that it's, it's way too low. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what we're doing here. You have no idea who I am, is what he's saying. I, and and if, if, you try, if you grapple with me on the level of your belly being full, that like sort of immediate satisfaction, you're never going to understand what's happening. And so we need to first be honest about that. The level at which we're actually seeking God. Something you should think about. And you should think about it right now. And you should think about it a lot later, too. What is the level on which you are actually really seeking God? What is the level on which you are actually really seeking the truth in your life? Is it for your immediate personal satisfaction? God should make stuff work out for me. And if God makes stuff work out for me, I will at least pay lip service to belonging to him. Is it that level? Is it getting along relationally? Is it having some kind of, like, belief about, like, what matters in your current society? Like, give it, that Jesus would give you a politics or something. Is it that you want to see something in a world that's very difficult, something beautiful? Right? Is it that you want to see something that's beautiful because it's truly good? Or come hell or high water, do you want to know what the truth is no matter what it is? Even if it's against you. Even if it feels like it's going to take you apart piece by piece, strip you naked, and humiliate you before reality. Doesn't matter. What you want to know is the truth. And then how the truth is good. And then how the truth produces beauty. And then how that beauty produces rightness. Then how that rightness produces justice. How that justice produces flourishing. And how that flourishing produces life. Satisfaction. At what level? And at what level do you balk? Do you stop? Do you stop short? Are you not willing? Because you see, Jesus, Jesus is not willing to function at any level lower than the highest level. 
What you are working for, he's saying, make sure that it is on trajectory unto eternal life. Whatever it is you're doing, however you're seeking meaning or satisfaction, it should be there should be a direct line from life in the small sense, bread, eat, tummy full, satisfaction, life, to unto eternal life. And whatever work, human activity, and belief is happening, those two should be connected. The truth connects all the way down to the bread. And Jesus sits not here above the bread, dispensing it out of the wonder bread truck, but he exists here at the pinnacle of reality and truth. And then laying out every layer of its function in all its noble forms down to breaking bread and enjoying friendship and breathing in the fresh air and being easily satisfied in a beautiful world that is terribly corrupt. At what level? Right? Now, the way Jesus is saying this is he's saying, look, you are a physical creature that has a neurology. Most of our longings and our desires are connected to that. Like you get hungry. You want to eat food. You eat something wholesome. It feels wonderful. I was at a wedding last night, and they had bacon-wrapped shrimp, you guys. So good. You know? It's great. When I'm driving in the car, one of my favorite things is my wife reaches out and just touches the back of my head. It's just totally sensation, right? And then what that sensation means to me. But it's deeply connected just like my, my neurology and how I feel close to somebody physically. Right? When somebody shows up for me, like something happens at my house, and like somebody just shows up at the door, like I have a strong physical feeling of like, this is great. This person cares about me. Right? God made us so that our spiritual selves, our consciousness, and our physical bodies are united through this weird biological something whereby we're fully physical and we're strangely, mysteriously conscious in a way that is irreducible to that physicality. We're strange creatures. Right? And so we have these longings and needs, and it's part of meaning and truth and beauty. And they're intertwined with each other. And so our longings, we want them to be satisfied. And here's the thing. God wants them to be satisfied. And so Jesus doesn't just do a miracle where he makes spirits appear in the air. The miracle Jesus does is he gives the people bread and fish. And they're like, awesome. And a few miracles before this, what does he give them? 172 gallons of wine. Jesus is very physical, very tactical, very like down on the sparrows pecking at stuff level. He's not like this ethereal God that doesn't care about your real life. He cares about everything together. But here's the thing. If we just function in relationship to the satisfaction, our craving just sends us right back to the longing, and the longing is just looking for that satisfaction again. And we get in this repetition, and that repetition is in our consciousness. It also makes its way in our, into our neurology, so that before we know it, we are more and more trapped in these repetitions. What we think about, the way we respond to the same kind of conflict, what happens every time our spouse talks to us or our roommate in a way we don't like, how we feel about our parents every time we think about them, why we text people we should call or see in person. We just get over and over into this repetition. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he depicted hell as people getting farther and farther away from each other and behaving in more and more repetitive ways until they were just mumbling the same thing over and over and over and over again. Lewis 
thought of damnation as the advanced state of this repetition of craving and desire. Always seeking satisfaction, but getting ever less of it from the repetition. As opposed to following the satisfaction to what the satisfaction is a sign of. Why do you have that longing? Why were you made that way? Is it out of whack? What would the proper form of it look like? What were you created to be? And then what source is the source of that sign? What does the sign point to? So what does the satisfaction point to as a sign in nature and in creation or as a miracle? And then what does that miracle or thing in creation point to as its source? And you have to follow it to the source to be made whole, to be saved, to believe in the one that he has sent, to do the works of God. Otherwise, all of the works that we do on the bread level aren't connected to the truth, goodness, beauty, righteousness, justice levels. They're just our own selfish repetitions. Getting more mindless, more selfish, more shallow, more sensual, and souring and spoiling and giving us less and less and less and less in return. Now, this is what she says, right? Don't work for food that spoils but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He said, listen, I'm telling you the truth here. In the other Gospels, Jesus comes to his baptism, where there's some moment where he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, where God the Father speaks and says, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is John's version of that. This person who's telling you this right now, what you're hearing about what it means to exist beautifully, to find real satisfaction through sign and source, the person talking to you is the one who has God's seal of approval. Listen to him, right? And then they say, well, what do we do to do the works of God? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Now, in one sense, you can be like, that sounds like an evasive question, or evasive answer. To do the work of God is to believe. But you see, Augustine said it this way, Believe, believe God and do as you will. Right? Have you ever heard the verse that, um, that if you love God, he will give you the desires of your heart, or God will give you the desires of your heart? Yeah, the context of that is if you love him. If your heart aligns with God and you want what God wants, well, God's going to do what God wants to do. And if you want that, you're going to get it. Because God the King is going to do what he wants to do in his rule. And the more you want what he wants, the more you're going to get what you want. It is not— Hey, God, I did some of the stuff you like. Now give me the stuff I want. That is not how it works. You see, what Jesus is saying, if you, if you start with this work of God, believe in the one he has sent. Every work that you do will be the works of God. And if on any level you don't believe in the one who he sent, it doesn't matter what the work is. It's not the work of God. Not fully. Not really. Because it's not connected from its level all the way up to divine truth. And the one who is himself God such that he should be worshipped and known. It may go up quite a ways. You adopt a child, that goes up quite a ways. You alleviate injustice, that goes up quite a ways. But one, it will not go all the way up to worship where it belongs because justice is not something you've done. Justice is something you've tried to bring about because you must, because God is king. But in addition, we, when we do those goods and we don't connect them all the way up, they will spoil. We will spoil them. How many beautiful ideologies have human beings come up with over the years that had men been angels, 
they would have worked great. We could have been capitalists and communists at the same time. And it would have been fine. Because we as people don't track it all the way up to God as king. Nothing works. Everything spoils. God created marriage for the welfare and happiness of all mankind, the prayer book says. And we can turn it into a box of rocks really fast. Because we don't track it up all the way. How far are you willing to go? Don't work for that which spoils. Okay, we should get to the first point here. All right. <laughs> so his negative claim is you need to pay a lot more attention to what you're working toward. His positive claim and answer to that is Jesus is himself the source of everlasting satisfaction. He is the source of everlasting satisfaction. Remember, the metaphor here for life is what? When Jesus wants to display life in this context, what does he do? He makes food, right? So he's talking about very real, natural, even normal human satisfaction. But he speaks about it as though it's also eternal life on the highest level at the same time. Okay, now, how do you do this? And he says very clearly, believe in him as you labor for him. Believe in him as you labor for him. Or to put it in the metaphor of the, of the passage, you took the oars for the right reasons. Keep rowing. One of the things that happens to the disciples is they have this moment where they see this miracle, where they come to a new level of belief in Jesus. Right? When he made wine for this whole banquet, you know, it's like maybe 200 people. Right? That's something. Now there's like five to 15,000 people, depending on how many women and children were there. And with a couple of fish and loaves, he feeds everybody. And they begin to understand that he's like the second Moses. He's the prophet. So John starts to, so John talks son of God, and then he introduced son of man, what those mean. And he started to reorder what those mean, and now he's entering with this idea of the prophet. This third idea of God's anointed Messiah who's going to come and change everything. Who's the prophet? Who's the second Moses? It's Jesus. Jesus is the prophet. He's the son of God. He's the son of man, and he's also the prophet. He's all of these people in one. This is unbelievable, right? And then he's like, okay, great. Now, these people are going to try to make me king. I'm not going to be king. So I'm going to withdraw to the hills. I want you to go down to the boat and get in it and row over to Capernaum. And they're like, okay. All right? So that's where we are. They believe in Jesus that much. They know there's something really amazing about him. They saw what the other people saw. And then now they have, they've been told to do something. And so they start with believing in the one he sent. They, they take Jesus at his word, and they go and they do what they were told to do. Does that make sense? And they get in the boat for the right reasons, right? Jesus is pretty amazing, and he told them to do something. He's the teacher, and they're the disciples, and there's a boat, and they can do it. And so they go down the hill, and they get in the boat, and they start rowing for Capernaum. Does that make sense? Fair enough. Metaphor of faith. You get it? Are you with me? Okay, good. Now, here's the thing. It was terrible. It's terrible. Now listen, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever been, done a lot of boating, okay? Um, the water is one of my favorite things. I loved living in Florida. When I came here to Wisconsin to pastor this church, it was like me getting in that boat, okay? I, I, there was a big part of me that did not want to do it, because um, I love the water. But the water is beautiful when it's calm, and it's, an, it's one of the reasons why men who are sailors decided that the sea was a woman, 
right? Because when it's calm, it's wonderful, and when it's nasty, it's bad. You know what I mean? Like, and so, um, so these guys, not all of them are, are sea, are people who made their livings on the lake, by the way. Remember, th- there's at least one tax collector in the group who's, who may not have sea legs, right? And so, these guys get into this boat, and the, and the, John says it really tersely. He doesn't go on about it, but, but think about what he actually says. He says, when the disciples get out of the boat, it's already dark. So they're going to navigate on a lake that's width is about seven miles, and they're going to do it in the dark. Can they see the lights of Capernaum? I don't know. On a clear night, on a clear night they could. But on this night, can they? I don't know, right? And then it, it, John explicitly says, Jesus is not with them. So Jesus' physical presence isn't there. Third, there's a strong wind, and the wind is clearly against them because they're rowing, okay? All of these boats— that could hold 12 people or more in the Sea of Galilee, had masts, and they had sails. If the wind was blowing from behind them, they would not have been rowing. Nobody rows when you can sail, right? And it also says that not only were—was the wind blowing against them, but it was a sufficient amount of wind that it stirred up the lake, okay? Now, a couple things if you don't know these things nautically. What stirred up means is that there's bigger waves, but they're not just flowing in one direction. They're rocking, it's—they're stirred up. Does that make sense? And what that does to a boat is the boat doesn't just rock up and down. It rocks up and sideways. Okay? And so people would say, when I used to be on the beach, I remember being on the beach, standing by Bill Mullins, right? He's another fisherman. He's like, man, stirred up out there. And you could look at the horizon. Instead of the horizon line looking straight, you could see these little U's in it. Because even at miles away, you could tell that the sea wasn't flat calm. And you knew if you were out there, what we used to say was, you'd get beat up. That's what you say. Yeah, hey, go out today, you're going to get beat up. Meaning, you're trying to do something while the boat is going up and down, and also going sideways while the wind is blowing, and it'll turn, and there's current. Now imagine this for a second, okay? You're in this boat. It's pitch black, okay? This isn't like dark in the city with street lamps everywhere. It's like pitch black, okay? There's no stars, the wind is blowing 25 mile an hour plus. You're on the far end of the lake, which means the rollers have been building for seven miles. The waves are worst at the far shore, right? So they're paddling, they're rowing through the worst of it, okay? There's, there's maybe 12 guys in the boat. There's probably maybe six guys rowing, okay? Now, you're sitting on a wooden bench. You've got an oar. You're going up and down like this. But the boat is also going like this. And you're trying to row. And while you're rowing, the wave is moving that you're trying to put your oar in. So you're trying to get your oar in the wave so you can get some leverage to actually get a pull. So you can get your back and legs into it while you're twisting like this and going up and down. And the guy behind you who's a tax collector is literally puking on you fish and loaves that Jesus had made miraculously. And you've been doing it for like five hours. Do you feel it? Now let me ask you this. How does it feel like to be a Christian right now in your life? You see, part of the purpose of John including this story is because he's trying to show you that the, the way Jesus taught his disciples 
in the physical realities of his instruction, we're meant to teach them and then through them us spiritual lessons. And so he's got to make some moments bad enough that we can go, oh, that's how it feels. Now, some of you don't, don't feel like that right now. You're like, no, Nick, I feel like, a, like, the, like I'm walking in the morning dew with the shepherd, and I'm a little lamb, and the sun is shining on me, and the shepherd loves me, and it's so great. I'm going to eat some of that little alfalfa over there, and there's a little, little stream, and there's little hinds jumping on the rocks above me, and it's really nice. And th- listen, you can stop listening. I, God bless you. That's, I mean, it's great. And and my, and my hope is, is that like for, for a lot of your life, it will feel like that in lots of different moments. But the main metaphor Jesus is trying to say of what it will look like to be his disciple in this passage is it's going to look like this. This is what it's going to feel like to be his disciple. And it's going it's to be tough. And like even like some of the de- de- depictions, like I think there should be vomit flying out of the boat. And like, do you see this? What the heck is this? It's like, oh yeah, they're sailing. I was like, the wind is literally blowing in the opposite direction. Like that, that sail will be wrapped around the mast, literally pushing against them. And all the fish will be like, what the hell are we doing? Now, the way John is painting this picture as disciples coming years later, and we read this story, we're supposed to connect with it. What he's trying to help us see is, is that as a disciple of Jesus, we're trying to follow this one in whom we came to for satisfaction, right? People came to Jesus looking for something. And even if we're spiritually serious in coming to Jesus, we're looking for satisfaction. It's not like we're not looking for satisfaction. And what Jesus is promising is satisfaction. Jesus is like, listen, give up all of your hopes to be happy and come to me. Jesus never said that. And John is extremely straightforward. They say, no, Jesus is saying, come to me to actually be happy, to be happy forever, so that your happiness can make other people happy too, so that God can give maximal happiness, markarias, blessing to everyone as much as possible, to create real shalom. What God wants is our pleasure with him forever. And he's giving it in the man Jesus Christ. So the goal is satisfaction unto eternal life. And this is what's happening. Okay? That's got to be clear in our minds. What Jesus is pushing, moving towards, what he's pushing towards, what he's trying to give us, and what we're feeling. Question is, why did you get in the boat? Because the darkness that these guys are suffering is, generally speaking, what Christians feel like in the midst of worldliness and the confusion that it creates. We live in a world in which everybody acts like Believing in Jesus, following him like he's really Lord, serving him with warm affection, loving each other as brothers and sisters, is crazy. Is it real at all? That it's a completely unsatisfying way of looking at the world, that there's no good evidence for it, that we should really be looking at the world in a completely different way. And that's, there's a lot of darkness in that. It's just hard to see Capernaum. It's hard to see the lights. And therefore to know the course that you're on. And when you're rowing in winds like this, you, you want the comfort of knowing you're, you're rowing in a straight line, you know? And the chances that these guys were rowing in a straight line, not good. Not good. You put like Peter across from Matthew, and Matthew's like rowing like a pencil-pushing sissy, and Peter's like l- actually rowing like a fisherman, and the boat's like going in circles, you know what I mean? Like how many times the boat actually turned around and they had to get it back around, I have no idea. Right? And then Jesus isn't there, Okay? This is critical because, listen, Jesus is with us 
in the person of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit and Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and the Father are one being. They are three in person. They are one in being. That is, their personality is identical. They are doing what each other is doing. So to have the Holy Spirit with us is to have Christ with us. So much so that the biblical authors interchange them sometimes. Not because the Holy Spirit is the Son, but because the Holy Spirit and the Son are one. And so, functionally, you can refer to them interchangeably almost. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit is with us. And in the presence of the Spirit, Jesus reigned, and therefore Jesus is with us. In fact, in one of the Gospels, it says, Jesus is standing on the mountainside, and he's watching the disciples. He sees them. Right? But he's not with them. And the reason that's really difficult for us is, because Jesus is in the boat, you can't have encouragement, and you can't say, hey, Jesus, did you want to change your mind? And both of those are really big for us. I think a lot of people would say, Nick, I just, I'm really struggling with my faith. It's really hard to keep going. And if Jesus would just be like, you're doing fine. I'm here. I'm real. You're doing fine. That would be enough for me. That would be enough for me, right? And listen, I believe you that it would be enough for you. The question is, if he doesn't do that, is, it, is him saying, go down to the boat and row across the lake enough for you? That's the question. That he— died for your sins and rose for your justification 2,000 years ago and provided just testimony so that you could know that it was done on your behalf. Is that enough for you? If he doesn't feel like he's in the boat, if he's not there to say in a way you can perceive at this moment, you're doing fine, I'm here, you're doing fine. If you can't get that, is go down to the boat and row. Did you see what I did with the loaves and the fishes? Is that enough? That's the question, really. And the alteration thing is big because if Jesus was in the boat, after about the second mile of this, you think the disciples would be like, Jesus, it feels like we maybe should turn back for the night. And if Jesus was there in the boat, then Jesus could be like, yeah, this is stupid. Let's just go back. <laughs> or let's like turn to like, you know, one of, the, one of the cities on the north side of the lake. and It'll be shorter, you know, and we won't be rowing against the wind. But he's not there. You can't ask him. And you see, I think a lot of Christians feel that way. They're like, Okay, God, there's this stuff in the Bible. It's pretty hard. Some of it I don't know if I even agree with it. And I sure would like it if you were here and you could, like, help us update it. And there's all kinds of people who would say that they're Christians who in, by one means or another have found for themselves, found for themselves, spiritual authority to alter the teachings of Master Jesus. Whether it's sort of the liberal approach, which is to look at the Bible and begin to criticize its authorship, and to say, well, these people really didn't have full authority. This isn't what they really said. This is like blah, blah, blah. There's all these problems. But if we follow the spirit of Jesus, and we bring that into the future, and we amend it the way we think Jesus would now, if he was alive today, it would be something like this. And so we can alter the teachings of the master doing it that way. Some people are so mystical in their spirituality, and they believe that they have a fairly direct connection with the spirit of God in one way or another, that they feel like the spirit can tell them stuff to amend what the scripture teaches and says, and that that's also legitimate because the, whole, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, if that's what I'm hearing from, is here in the present with me in the boat. And maybe things that were right for 1645 or 240 AD should be altered now. Maybe we misunderstand the way Jesus would have altered it, and so here we are. And there are things in the Bible that, I mean, seem to be like you could take them more than one way. Now, in the third case, I think you just have to be as faithful as you can in interpreting stuff. Recognizing, though, that some of the stuff that Jesus is trying to say, you're naturally not going to agree with. If, when you reinterpret the Bible, it just always seems to be updating in a nice way that makes you fit in better, you're probably wrong. 
You're almost certainly wrong because Jesus was never agreeing with people even then, right? Now, um, what we need to recognize then here is, is that as Christians, what John is insinuating for us is you are dealing with darkness. The darkness of worldly solidarity is a real thing. You're not crazy to feel that. Jesus is not in the boat with you. Meaning, he's not physically present. Is, is he, he's on the hillside. He sees you, right? The Holy Spirit is with you. Like, there may have been the presence of God causing these guys not to sink. There could have been all kinds of activity all around them, including in their hearts, functioning in such a way that they're making progress. And yet, Jesus wasn't literally in the boat to encourage them verbally or update them personally. And you're in that same situation. Jesus, in that sense, is not literally here. Y'all, you're stuck with me to try to interpret this stuff. This is bad, you know? And then you are facing a lot of resistance. You're like, Nick, holiness is hard. Starting with Jesus the Christ and believing in him, and then trying to do what he says? And in chapter 7, he's going to say that. Listen, if you want to know if what I say is from God, believe in me and then do it. And in that experience, you're going to find out that what I'm saying is from God. It's experiential in that sense, and it's really hard. And that you're not crazy. It's like you're rowing into a major wind. And people are not thanking you for doing it, and the circumstances it creates are difficult. You are getting beat up. The ocean you're in is stirred up. You're not just trying to row. It's not like a nice day, and you're just rowing. There, this is happening too. And if you're like, Nick, I, can't, I feel like in my spiritual growth, I can't even get my oar in the water. It's like, yup. Yup, yup. John agrees. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. If you're like a student at the university, and you're like, Nick, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like I get punched, and I'm like carrying wood, and I'm carrying as much as I can, and then the people who just dumped their wood in the wheelbarrow, when they go by, they like push me. And I'm like carrying, and I'm getting pushed, and it's, it's infuriating, and, and frankly, it's really tiring. Like if you've ever tried to do something physically when somebody's like messing with you, it makes it three times as exhausting. And so some of you are like trying to make progress spiritually. That's hard enough. And then you've got spouse or coworkers or culture or university or whatever. It feels like, it feels like they're like beating you up while you're trying to do it. And you're like, this is hard. And then you've been around for a long time. Hours. And you're only but three miles from shore. Who knows when you're going to get there? It feels like it's taking forever. Yep. Yep. You're like, Nick, I've been a Christian for like 30 years. I just got angry at somebody yesterday over the stupidest thing. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So why would you get in this boat? Okay, and the answer is this. Is Jesus is why you'd get in this boat. Jesus is the answer you'd get in this boat. Because Jesus is amazing. He is giving life and fish from fish and bread to eternal life. And he's giving it freely out of care and love. And he tells the truth and he leads towards righteousness and he seeks the good and he speaks towards justice. And he's amazing. There's no one like Jesus and there's nothing like Jesus. And he said, go and get in the boat. That's why. Right? Remember the thing he says? He says, I am. You don't have to be afraid. When you're rowing like that, when that's how your Christian life feels, or that's what it feels like it would be like to be a Christian, Jesus is like, listen, I am. Do you see the metaphor here? Like throughout most of the ancient world, the, the water represented the primordial creation. It represented complete chaos. And in many cases, evil. Evil creatures came out of the deep, right? And so he's, he's walking on all of creation's chaos and evil in these waves and wind, and he's just walking through it. 
And the question is, how, how can he do that? And he answers the question. He says, I am. Same words, Moses are out of the bush. The God who exists, who is there, who is over all of the chaos and evil of creation, he surpasses all of it. And so you don't have to be afraid. Now, I'm going to go through a couple reasons for this very quickly. The first is, is that you have heard the instructions correctly. What Jesus has spoken and shown through his life, death, and resurrection, and inscripturated through the writings of his apostles, is God's right charge and truth and invitation and good news to the human race. When he calls us to believe in him and to follow him and to see what will happen when we put our hands to the oar and when we get in the boat, we are following the right instruction. You got in the boat for the right reason. If you get into that boat, you're getting into the boat for the right reason. You're going to find out how far this goes. You're going to find out when this Jesus is or isn't going to show up. You're going to find out what all this means. You see, one of the biggest questions of what level you're on is this. Are you going to protect what you can get? Or are you going to go in and find out how far this goes? That's the question. What kind of person are you? Are you willing to lose everything to find out how far this goes? Or are you going to protect your comfort and your satisfaction and what you think you have? Right? The second thing is this. Is that believing the Son of Man and stepping out into obedience is where you discover and experience the goodness of his actual will. The disciples experience something that the, other, the rest of the crowds never experience. Right? One is, is that the disciples find out later that Jesus was watching them the whole time. He was, he was simultaneously up on this hill spending some time with the Father. He was accomplishing some things for himself. He was doing some stuff. He wasn't idle. But he was also—he watched them. His, his eyes were on them the whole time. They were never out of his sight. And in some sense, they were never really in danger. Though they were constantly in danger. Right? The second thing is, is that they were serving a purpose the whole time. You see, Jesus was doing very, something very specific with the crowds. And in order to accomplish what he was doing with the crowds, he needed a boat decoy. Simple. Right? It says in the verses that you read later, right? It says the people were confused where Jesus was because they saw the disciples get in the boat and they saw the disciples leave. And so they knew Jesus didn't leave and they knew there was only one boat. So they had no flipping idea where Jesus was. And so they, that's why how they had all this conference on the east side. And people came up from Tiberias. They're like, where is Jesus? By the time people got in their boats and went over to Capernaum, how big was the crowd size? Right? Probably much smaller. Which meant they couldn't do what? Force him to be king. You see, Jesus created a, a, a providential set of logistical dynamics where he was pulling something off, and they had a particular part in it, and they didn't know their part in it. Because Jesus didn't say, well, you know, about halfway through the night, I'm going to walk on water. Nope, they didn't get to know that. Why? Because God does not tell you that stuff in advance. He doesn't say, hey, listen, if you do this courageous, believing thing, I'm going to do this really amazing thing, and it's going to work out, even though it looks like it's not going to work out. He never tells you in advance. I mean, there's a gift of prophecy— Sometimes there are a few things you hear in advance, but that is not how it's normally functioning. It's normally functioning, we believe the one he has sent. We get in the boat and we row. And about the time that we're up to our gills in salt water, the Son of Man comes walking on the waters. Does that make sense? The third thing is, is that the disciples were being shaped and they were being shaped together. This was extremely important for their development. They remembered this. It made it into three Gospels. It was a very memorable moment. 
in their shaping as disciples. I mean, it took a long time to get the brine out of their gills. You understand? Like, this is, like, this is very memorable. And you see, teachers know this. It's like, like, I want to teach somebody, and parents, I struggle with this because, like, I want my kid to learn this. But here's one of the things that's so disappointing about parenting, okay? Let me tell you my number one biggest disappointment with parenting. When I have just said incredibly useful stuff to my kids, without yelling, without there being any blood, like, without anything being on fire, without the moment being traumatic, right? For some reason, they don't remember it. It's like, oh yeah, dad, I, yeah, yeah, I know that, right? And it's, and it's like, I, kid, this is gold. This stuff, this stuff I'm telling you right here, like, this is, this is really good. Like, I paid. Generations of humans have paid for this wisdom, and if you just listened to me, you would be way ahead, and they're just kind of like, whatever, you know? <laughs> and so listen, they never forgot this, you understand? And at the end of this, right? Jesus knew the coordinates. already said that. The thing is also, they experience the self-revelation of God that nobody else experiences in the hardest, most difficult, most dangerous obedience. They enter into this horrifically terrible obedience, and in the midst of it, that's where Jesus walks on water. And they're the only people who see it, because they're right in the middle of the lake. It's a dark night. There's no lights. The waves are six feet tall. And Jesus probably wasn't that tall. <laughs> and Jesus comes walking on the water, and they're the, in, the, in the middle of the lake, three miles from anywhere. These 12 men see the Savior walking on water. I, I'd do anything for that. I'd try to row across, I'd, tr I'd try to row across the Pacific to see that. You see, once you put it in perspective, you know what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. He says, I do not consider our present sufferings worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Right? And right at the end of this event, Jesus is going to say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He's going to give his hardest teaching. And it makes sense that his disciples will be coming off his hardest, most amazing lesson right before they have to grapple with his hardest teaching. The teaching for which every other disciple leaves except for those 12. Do you see Jesus' providence in that? His goodness, his wisdom? That's why you get in the boat. Because of Jesus, right? And I think the church is like that boat. We're all kind of rowing together, and not everybody's rowing, and like this guy's puking, and you know, like, the, like it's, it's, not, it's not just this, it's this, you know, and we're all trying to sort this out, and it's, it's not like, oh, we're all the sheep, we're walking with the shepherd, it's so nice, it's not. It's this, it's chaos. And if you don't understand and believe the church is going to be like that, in some ways that your family's going to be like that, that your home is going to be like that, your expectations are going to be all wrong, and guess what you're not going to have? Satisfaction. You'll never be satisfied because you didn't know what to expect in the first place. I expect canoe trips to be hard, but I still love them. You know? And then the last thing is this. Oh, wait, this is— I sort of did this at the beginning. I'm out of time now. Let me, let me end with this one. Worst of you, you can come up if you want. Here's, here's the thing. Notice how this parable ends. You see, in the other ones, Jesus calms the sea. But in this one, the way John depicts it is, they see Jesus. He says, I am, don't be afraid. They're willing for him to come in the moat, and immediately they've arrived. 
Do you see that? They're there. They mate. On one level, I think this story is being told by John to point towards the return of Christ, our glorification. Which is unencouraging in this. That that might mean that our whole life is that rowing. <laughs> That's tough. But what he's saying is he's saying, and then right when you're three and a half miles, you feel like maybe you can't row another, another oar pull. The one who is over all of creation, even death, and all chaos, stands and walks into the midst of it and says, I am. Don't be afraid. And then you're suddenly there. Right? Like that last page in the Screwtape Letters by Lewis where the Christian is blown up by a bomb. And in one moment he goes from trying to keep people safe in a, in a German bombing to seeing glory, knowing it was always like this. Shedding all of the rowing of sin and difficulty off in a moment and realizing that he had always been aiming for this presence of Jesus. Right? At some point, you will row your last oar stroke. And suddenly, one will be there who says, I am. Don't be afraid. And you will suddenly be there. And I think John wants us to know that when Jesus is about to say, believe in me, whatever you work for, work for it unto eternal life. Whatever you're rowing, see how far it goes. Do it for the right reasons. Connect the satisfaction to the source. Think a lot more about why you're working for what you're working for. And knowing that the first work, if you want to work the works of God that lead from bread all the way to eternal life, is to believe in the one he has sent. God, help us in these next few minutes where we have some songs to, to praise and worship you and love you in poetry and song. Help us to think about these things. Bring them home to us, Holy Spirit. Help them to change us in such a way as that we will go as far as we can towards you and the truth and that it would lead to satisfaction to every piece of bread we ever eat, every moment we share, all the simple things in our lives, and that all of them would never spoil, but would mature unto eternal life. We pray the name of that Christ. Amen.